You're listening to the Redemption Hill Church podcast from Tallahassee, Florida. For more information, visit our website at rh-church.com. Hey, Pastor Chad here. I'm so glad you've taken the time to listen. We're currently studying verse by verse through the book of Acts. Among other things, we'll see the mission, the persecution, and the expansion of the church. Now, time for this week's message. If you guys have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, why don't you open them up to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12. We've spent um, a, several weeks now going through um, the book of Acts, or through this particular chapter. And it, to me, it's a fascinating chapter, and, and today we're going to just hold the last few verses um, we're going to look at verses, uh, I think I've put in the bulletin 19 through 20, but really we, we might back up a verse to, um, to verse 19. Verse 19 really ought to probably be part of verse 20. But here we go. I'm going to just read it real quick, and then we're just going to see what the Lord has for us, all right? So Acts chapter 12, um, starting in verse 19, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. It says this, And after Herod searched for him, Peter, so after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries in order that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him and with one accord, and having persuaded Balstus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the, king, on the king's country for food. Verse 21. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And they put, or, and the people were shouting the voice of God and not a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Sounds yummy, doesn't it? Right before lunch. All right, and then verse 24 says, But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had... Um, completed their service, bringing with them John, whose name was Mark. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day again, God. And I pray that just in the next few moments as we look at this um, passage in, in Acts, God, I pray that you just, uh, that you help us all find, find something. The Holy Spirit, you work in us, that you, that you reveal something to us, that you make this passage applicable to us. Lord, may we leave today different than we arrived, and maybe part of that is the worship that we sang, and we're so thankful for Katie coming and helping us this morning. Maybe some of it is um, being inspired by seeing the Sullivans go and, and give up time to go down to Costa Rica and Honduras on a missions trip. Or maybe some of it right now is your word, that your word penetrates us. God, I pray that, that you open up our eyes, our ears, and our minds to your words. Holy, Holy Spirit, I pray that you work in us. Jesus, I pray right now that you give me your heart, that you give me your passion, give me your words. Help us to be faithful and true to your words and your words alone. We love you and thank you, and we look forward to what you're about to do today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Yes, this is pretty awesome. Because as we looked at this particular chapter, this is, this is a, a, a changing point. After this chapter, as we've said a time or two before, the story of Acts shifts. Right now, when we look at, um, at a time period from, from this 
point in time. It's, it's covering approximately 13 years of time. And for the most part, it's, it's been centrally located in Jerusalem with a few little minor trips to um, areas close by. We, we've seen um, the day of Pentecost within the Jewish faith, and then we've seen kind of the Gentile Pentecost. We've seen some of the disciples take key roles, specifically Peter. And now that baton is about to be handed off to Paul, and Paul and his missionary journeys become more the central theme of the remainder of the book of Acts. But this particular chapter, chapter 12, it's, it's one of those roller coaster rides, if you will, of, of Scripture. Because it starts off, the very beginning, those first few verses that we looked at, verses uh, 1 through 5, it starts off with this idea that, that Herod had gone and he had arrested James, the brother of John, and had him beheaded. That's a little bit of a buzzkill, isn't it? Like, that's not the happy story. I mean, we previously, before that, you get into chapter 11, it talks about this church of Antioch and how it blew up and revival was going play all over the place. It was awesome. This hoo-hoo-hoo, you know, parades going on and everything's great. And then it's kind of back to reality. James is beheaded. And then they arrest Peter. Again, probably the, the most known disciple, right? I mean, he's, he's the guy, the take charge kind of guy. He becomes kind of the face of the group after Jesus ascends into heaven. And so he's arrested, and, and the only thing that kind of saves him at first, obviously beyond God, was it was during the Passover feast. And so they hold him in prison. And what's interesting is we looked at those first few verses there that when, when Herod had James arrested and beheaded, the Jewish religious leaders were excited. They got them all happy, and, and, and so Herod thought, well, let's not just stop with James. Let's go to Peter next. And so Peter's arrested. So they wait till Passover's over. And right before Herod could send for Peter and have Peter meet the same fate probably that James would have, an angel arrives. Angel arrives and wakes up Peter, and, 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 and the angel really delivers life to Peter, brings him out, gets him out of the area. He runs back, goes to the upper room, probably finds the rest of the gang. And remember, we kind of talked, it was kind of that comedic section of Scripture there where, where everyone thinks Peter is dead or, or is about to be killed, and they're praying for him, and he's out there on the front gate banging, asking them to open the door. And they're like, shh, we're praying, shh, we're praying, we're praying, we're praying that Peter's delivered. And Peter's like, I'm right here. Open up. Right? And so finally they let him in. And, um, and everything's good. Everything seems great. And, and then we get this last little glimpse, this last glimpse of a, of a character that's been central in this particular chapter, and it's Herod. This, this particular Herod, as we stated in, in the three or four weeks ago, this is Herod Agrippa I. He's, he's the grandson of Herod the Great, which is, as, as Pat was mentioning in Costa Rica, the idea of the, the nativity scenes. Right? So when we think of, of Herod, we, a lot of times we'll go back to the Christmas story. We think of the wise men and, and the Herod. That's Herod the Great. This is his grandson, Herod Agrippa I. And he's the one that's, that's done all this. And, and what I want us to see today is, is I be, one of the reasons why I believe the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to add this little vignette to this 
concluding chapter is it gives us this great contrast between Peter and Herod. As I stated before, when, when Peter came in contact with the angel, the angel brought him life. And Peter was very clear in that, that when he realized what was going on, when he kind of came to his senses, the Bible tells us that he gave glory to God. That's a very important key term, that he gave glory to God. Something good, something great had happened in his life, and the first thing he did was give glory to God. In this particular story here, um, what happens is Herod, you know, he's, he's searching all over for these guys, for, for, for Peter, can't find Peter. And so um, he takes those four guards that have been guarding him, and he has them executed. And then from there, he jets out of town. He leaves and goes to Caesarea. Caesarea is a, a, a pretty important city during these days. Um, if you go over to that area today, you can still see a lot of the archaeological finds. It was, it was known as being one of those um, important cities. It, it was famous for a theater. It, was, it, was, it had this aqueduct system, right, that it would take water from the base of Mount Carmel, which was about 10, 12 miles away, and deliver the water to Caesarea. They, they estimate that the average household there during that time through that aqueduct, would receive about 150 gallons of water a day. To help put it in perspective today, that you know, the average household in the United States today uses between 60 and 65 gallons of water a day. So this is like cutting edge. This is, this is the real deal. This is, this is big time. I mean, they were known for um, their horse racing. Uh, they, they were, the, this Caesarea was, was an area that would host the Olympics. Like we're getting ready this summer, I think, is the Summer Olympics, isn't it? Right? And so back here, you know, the, the, the Olympics would be hosted there. And so this is an, a town, you know, Herod takes off, hangs out in Caesarea. And the Bible tells us there's this, there's this problem that arises. It doesn't tell us what the issue is. It just highlights that, um, that it involved Herod and Tyre and Sidon, these two other cities. Those particular cities were not underneath um, Herod's jurisdiction or, or under his authority in a sense, but they depended on Herod to supply them food. So in essence, although they weren't underneath his authority, they needed him. And something happened that was causing a, a, a fracture, that was, that was causing stress. And so these, these guys over at Tyre and Sidon, they became friends with, with one of the chief servants of Herod. And, and as a result of that, he was able to manipulate or encourage Herod to come up with this agreement. And so, and if you notice in, in your scripture there, um, verse 21, it says, And on an appointed day, Herod um, put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration. History tells us, Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, writes that, that this appointed day, happened to be this annual festival that was held to celebrate the Caesar, to, to, to honor and celebrate Caesar. And during this period, it would have been Caesar Claudius. It was a big deal. People would travel from all over to come to, to that area at Caesarea. Again, as I said, it was famous for this theater. It actually had the world's largest man-made port. I mean, it was big time. And they would travel here. And, and in the midst of this, when, when, when the spotlight was on, 
he shows up. Herod puts on his royal robes. And, and again, Josephus tells us that his robe actually was made out of silver. And so if you think through this, he's going outside. He's in this outdoor theater. The sun is out, and the sun is glistening off of this royal robe. I mean, he's like a walking disco ball. And he begins this oration. We don't know what he says, or some kind of speech in which he, he mends fences. And the response of the people they just kept calling out that this, this is more than a man. He's, he's a God. This is a voice of a God. And Herod just accepted all this applause. He, he accepted all this, this worship. And then an angel comes. And it says it strikes him immediately. Josephus tells us that, that Herod himself, it actually took five days for him to die. And his death was a slow painful death. Luke, don't forget Luke who wrote the book of Acts was a medical doctor. So as he's describing this stuff, it's not, he, he, he has knowledge, he understands, he knows what's taking place. And he describes it as worms that were eating him. I mean, he was from his inside out for five days. Herod, the once walking disco ball that was receiving all sorts of adoration, who was being hailed as a god and not a man, was dying a slow, painful, agonizing death. You see, where I say, where, what I see here is this, this drastic difference between Peter and Herod. You guys remember a few chapters back when we were in, in Acts chapter 10? Herod had, or Peter had that dream. Remember, he was out on this upper porch. She was dreaming, and there was that the sheet came down with all those unclean animals, and hear the voice of God saying, go and eat them all. What awakes him from that dream are these, these guards, these, these soldiers that were sent from Cornelius, the centurion, to, to come get Peter. Cornelius is a Gentile. You know, Jews and Gentiles don't hang out. They don't talk. They, don't, they walk on opposite side of the streets. They don't, they don't like each other. They hate each other. But Peter goes and he shows up at Cornelius' house, and, and verse 10-25 tells us as he walked into the house, Cornelius like fell to his feet and began to worship Peter. And verse 26 tells us that Peter told him to get up, to stop worshiping him, and to worship God. See, when the opportunity for Peter to receive all that kind of worship, he rejected it. He wouldn't take it. He deflected it all to God. But Herod, much different story. I mean, he's, he's receiving it. He's, he's encouraging it. He's loving every moment. And it caused me to think as I was considering this idea, kind of a reoccurring theme, is this idea of bringing glory to God. What does that mean? And, and what, what I want us to, to consider just quickly, quickly is this. Two things. One, the danger of not giving God glory. And then two, practically how do we give God glory? One is this, real quickly, I think it's easy as we, as we kind of see this in this passage, is the result of him not giving glory to God was death. We don't have the time fully to do this, to, to read it, but there's another great example of something similar, different but similar. If you were to go back into Daniel chapter 4, last summer, or about a year ago this time, we began going through the book of Daniel. We won't read it all right now, but, but, but maybe mark in your notes or something that Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 37. This is the second dream that Daniel is going to interpret. 
And actually the book of the fourth chapter, most um, commentary believe that this is actually written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. But, but what happens is this. Nebuchadnezzar gets out on his front porch and he begins to just bask in the glory. He looks around at his kingdom and he thinks how great and how awesome uh, he has built this amazing, amazing kingdom. And then God just strikes him. God, God tells him that because of, because of his pride, because of his arrogance, he was going to be humbled to the point as we read that passage, he becomes like a wild beast. A wild beast. I mean, his, his fingernails, his, his toenails grow long. They, they describe him as if growing all this um, extra hair and feathers. I mean, a, literally like a wild beast because he had put all of his glory in himself. And it wasn't until the very end when you read that, I think it's like verse 30 or so in that, that he decides to turn his eyes to heaven. And once he turns his eyes to heaven and acknowledges God and gives him glory, is he restored? To me, it's just a, a great reminder of this idea of, of how important it is for us to give God the glory. Isaiah 48, 11 says this, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should, I, how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God says, listen, the glory's mine. One of the verses that I think we see, are seeing lived out today in dramatic fashion that plays right along to this theme of who is giving and accepting the glory is Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. It says this, Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. There's great danger when we decide that we are worthy of the glory. There's great danger when we believe what we think is more important than what God says. And that's exactly what happens to Herod. Here's what I want us to do, again, quickly, is this. Practically, how do we give God glory? I think as we go through Scripture, there's several ways that we can do it. But, but this morning, I, I, I want us to just highlight a couple. We won't do it in great detail, but, but just... Stick with me here. I think one of the first things we can do, maybe if not the first thing to do to bring glory to God is through confession and repentance of sin. Again, that's just like Romans 1, 24 through 25 is not a politically correct statement to read. This idea of confession and repentance of sin is not a um, politically correct statement to believe and act and live. I, I was reminded of a story in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua. You guys remember the story? And if you grew up in church, you, you no doubt remember when the children of Israel, Israel would go and they would conquer Jericho. Remember where they would march around with the trumpets and all that stuff? It was a, a great story. One of the, the, the important parts for us to remember about that particular story is it was, it was all God. God was the one who brought all victory. I mean, all they did was march around the city and blow a trumpet, Right? Like, you're not going to win. Typically, we won't win many battles that way. 
But that was the instructions God gave them. They followed through with it, and God brought them victory. But listen, one of the things that he said, one of the, the commandments he made was, listen, don't take any spoils of war. You leave it. Just go on. Well, there was one guy who didn't want to listen, Achan. Achan went and he took some. So they get ready a little while later to go into battle once again. This time they're going against a much smaller and insignificant city called Ai. I mean, it should have been an easy, easy battle. And they roll up and they are horribly, terribly defeated. And if you go into uh, Joshua 7, chapter 7, verse 19, Joshua is, is, goes to Achan and he says to Achan, he's, he's begging Achan, he says, listen, give God glory by repenting, by, by asking forgiveness of all the things that you've done. One of the things that we can do to give God glory is when we mess up, and we will mess up. We all mess up. But one of the ways that we give God glory is to acknowledge how we've screwed up and then to ask him to forgive us of that. Confession and repentance. We can't just dust it under a rug. We can't just close our eyes and hope no one realizes it. We, we, we can't hide from God. Go back to Genesis and see how it worked out for Adam and Eve. We can. One of the, the great ways that we initially give honor and glory to God is to confess and then to repent. I, I had to deal with one of our kids a couple nights ago. Some of us, it's easy to ask for forgiveness. It's that repentance that's hard, isn't it? And to me, I think those, those, um, are, are, those two are linked together, the idea of forgiveness and repentance. And one of the things I was telling one of the girls is, you know, it's easy to say, I'm sorry. It's easy to say, will you forgive me? But the true test of whether you really are sorry and you really want forgiveness is if you're going to change. Like if we have the same conversation tomorrow morning, then you weren't really sorry and you really didn't genuinely want to be forgiven. Right? I mean, repentance is a part of it. The idea of repentance is, is the idea of changing. But, but check this out. So the first one, I think, is, is confession and it's repentance. But the second part is this. And you might think, well, this sounds very similar, Chad. But listen, the second way we, we give God glory is to confess him as Lord. Well, it sounds a lot like the other one. But it, it, this is, to me, huge. And this is one of the things that I think today in our society and in, in, in our lives, in my life, that we miss the mark on. Like, we don't have a problem calling Jesus our Savior because we want to be saved from eternity in hell. We want to be able to enjoy life in heaven. Like, we want that part. But to call him Lord, is, it's, it's a bigger step. Um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What does that mean to confess Jesus as Lord? It means that it's not our wants, it's his wants. It means that you're going to give your life completely to him. You're going to allow him to make the rules. You're going to allow him to lead you. You're going to fully put yourself under 
him and make him your Lord. You'll be his servant. That's not easy. Again, we like the Savior part, right? We like the idea of being saved from something. But part of us still continually fights back because we want to be in control. We want to do what we want to do on our own terms when we want to do it. We, we want to be the ones that call the shots. We measure our contentment on things that we can do, things that we can obtain. That's where we think joy comes from. And we're missing the point. One of the saddest commentaries, I think, in the Old Testament is in the final verse in the last chapter of the book of Judges. It's a It's a startling remark on the nation of Israel. It says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As I was reading and preparing this week, I I swore I was reading a statement on Fox News about the United States. This idea that we just do what we think is right in our own eyes. That we think that we have the ability to make better rules than God. We've been doing a, a, I can't remember if it's on our Wednesday night study or if it's on our small group. But nonetheless, the same guy authored both books, makes the statement this. He goes, listen, we can make the rules when we can create universes. Or when we have that power to create a universe, then you have the power probably to create what you think is right and what's wrong. But until then, That power, that authority rests in the one who created it. Again, those aren't always easy things to accept. Are we willing to confess Jesus as our Lord? I believe as we do that, I believe as we confess um, and repent, we bring God glory. I believe as we confess Jesus as our Lord, much more than just a Savior, as we make him our Lord, we're bringing him glory. Quickly, I think we give God glory with our bodies. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 18-20 says this, um, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, for whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We hear a statement that that is thrown out there so often today where we say, listen, it's my body. I should or I can, whatever. For those who are believers of Jesus Christ and have asked Jesus Christ to become your Lord and your Savior, realize according to 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, your body is not your own. Your body is is a temple that the Holy Spirit rests in. He talks here, he's he's talking about this sexual immorality, and he makes a a definite, the Apostle Paul makes a definite statement. He's saying, listen, this marriage, or or, or sex outside of marriage is wrong. Any way you slice it is wrong. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. And in here, it's it's interesting because so often we talk about, well, you know, sin is sin in God's eyes. Listen, I don't want to debate that, but what I want to say is he makes a very special 
important statement there. And he says, listen, all other sinners on the outside of the body, but this one, this sexual sin is a sin on the inside of the body. And therefore, you are damaging and you are hurting the temple of God. The next way I think that we can give God glory is by bearing fruit. John 15, verse 8 says this, this is, but th- or By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. To me, that's interesting. He says, you can glorify God. We, we know we, that, you, that you're glorifying God by bearing much fruit. If we're not careful, we read that and we take, wow, this is all based on all my work, all my efforts, all these things that I'm doing. And so my actions, uh, all my work, all these things that I'm, I'm doing, like I'm the one creating this glory. But you have to back up a few verses to John 15, 5, and he says this. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? And so what Jesus is saying is like, listen, I'm the vine. You guys are simply the branches. Well, I'm not a farmer. I know nothing about agriculture. I've got a half-dead garden in my backyard to prove it. But listen, this is what I do know. Like, the, the, the branches, all they do is they, they carry the fruit. But it's the vine that brings the nourishment. It's the vine that provides for the branches. That it's the vine that brings all the, the nourishment to the, to the fruit. It's the vine. It's not the branches. It's the vine. And so as we're abiding in Christ as we're growing in Christ, as we're confessing and repenting in Christ, as we're making him our Lord, as we're pleasing him with our bodies, he produces much fruit in our lives. And some of us, without sounding legalistic, without sounding judgmental, some of us need to look in the mirror and do some self-evaluation to see what fruit there is in our lives. Because if we take this scripture as, as what it says, as we draw close to him, he's going to bring fruit in our lives. And we may need to reevaluate some things and figure out where the glory is going. And the final one is ministering to others. 2 Corinthians 9, 10 through 13 says, He who supplies seed to the sower, and he is Jesus, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seeds for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will provide thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, that they will glorify God because of their submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and all others. What Paul's saying there is, listen, everything that you have is a blessing of God. And those blessings were not meant to hoard. Those blessings weren't meant to just gather and store but God gave you those blessings to give and to help. And God's the one that gave it to you. And God's the one 
that we'll continue to give. And God's the one who can cause it to multiply. And some of us get caught in that. Some of us struggle with that because we, we, we think it's our work, it's our actions, it's our abilities, it's our talents, our gifts. And we have to sometimes step back and remember that all those things were things that God gave you. The talent you have to go to work every day. The job that you have. The ability to wake up this morning and breathe. It's all been given to us by God. I think we can probably sum this up as I, as I conclude with this. A very familiar verse. As we consider this idea of giving God glory, whether we are or aren't. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says this, So whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Write that in your note. If you have a bulletin right there, there maybe it's in your Bible. Right there. But in this passage, right next to this idea of Herod who dies, a horrible, awful, agonizing death, put down there, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, and, and be mindful. And, and if you go back there later, underline the word all in there, because it says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything. All means everything. Everything. And what's awesome about this particular story, as you see God dealing with Herod, verse 24 tells us, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Verse 24 shows us that not only does God's word grow and multiply, but God's works, as Peter, or as Paul and Barnabas returned from Jerusalem with that love offering that we talked about a chapter or two ago. God's works, God's word grew and multiplied. Some of us, well, I got excited. Some of us will sit back and if we're honest, we'll say, listen, we all enjoy gratitude. We all enjoy a high five. We all enjoy words of encouragement. We need that. As a faith family, we ought to constantly be doing that. But hopefully, as people begin to applaud the talents and the abilities and the things that you do, rather than absorb it and take it all in, we deflect it and we send it to God. But when we mess up and when we screw up, we can take rest in those last two verses. Because it was God's word that increased and multiplied. So even when we mess up, God's word and God's works continue. And God continues to use flawed people. My prayer for us is that we strive to give God glory in everything, in our thoughts, in our actions, with our children, with our spouses, with our health, or our sickness, and our neighbors, our church, community that we live in, the paycheck that will be deposited maybe this week or next week. As you go to the grocery store maybe this afternoon or tomorrow, you have a full shopping cart and you can give God glory for that. So much of this stuff in our lives today we take for granted. And let's just give God glory for it. Let's pray. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Our goal at Redemption Hill 
is to see souls saved and lives changed. If the Holy Spirit spoke to you today and you made a decision, or maybe you have a question or a comment, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at chad, C-H-A-D, at rh-church.com. If you don't have a a regular church home, we would love for you to consider visiting us. You can go to our website, rh-church.com, or find us on Facebook for directions. Until next time.